This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode features graphic depictions of sexual violence against women. Listener discretion is advised. A college student, a beloved sister and daughter, the victim of a gruesome murder. The killer, full of dark secrets and a twisted motive. This is Method and Madness, Episode 8, The Murder of Katie Winter. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. What should have been a happy holiday season turned into a mother's worst nightmare when she heard the words, Grandma, Katie's dead. A bloody discovery leads to the truth behind an online friendship. Let's dive in. The dark side of social media is not a place that anyone thinks they will venture willingly or get trapped in. Humans are by nature trusting people. We are wired that way. Experiences may lead us to be more cautious, but it's those that are the most vulnerable, those who have little experience or inherently see the good in others, that are most likely to be the unfortunate victims that get caught up in the dangerous web. The very idea of catfishing, someone online creating a fake profile to fool others for their own personal gain, is not a new concept, and even the savviest of internet users could fall victim. A UK study conducted in 2018 by the men's lifestyle brand Sugar Cookie revealed that one in three of their readers have been catfished. People are conned into sending explicit photos or even money to strangers online. Some victims of catfishing engage in years-long relationships with an online suitor never meeting, only to find out that the person they fell in love with over text or messenger was not at all who they thought it was. Today's story takes us to Hertfordshire in England, a county that was the main setting of Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice, and sits just north of London. It was 2011 in Borehamwood, a town that has been known for many of its movie studios, producing films like The Shining and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Resident Katie Winter, 19 years old, was attending West Hertfordshire College in Watford, a school that offers vocational courses and apprenticeships where she studied graphic design and illustration. Katie was born Catherine Winter and was known for creating art for her loved ones. She enjoyed attending church and was dedicated to her studies. Close with her mother, Joy, and older sister, Sabrina, Katie was thrilled when she became an aunt at the age of 15 when Sabrina gave birth for the first time and a year later, a second time. 
Katie was described by family and friends as a gifted artist and a very thoughtful girl who never had a negative thing to say about anyone. By all accounts, Katie was the type of person to always see the good in others. At college, she met fellow art student Tony Bushby, age 18, a shy and quiet black belt karate instructor, also from Borehamwood. They became friends, sharing an interest in design, and began communicating via Facebook, where their friendship began to blossom into something more. A few months after meeting, in April 2011, Tony asked Katie out to the cinema, and the pair went on their first official date. They enjoyed each other's company and continued to talk, message each other on Facebook, and meet up on occasion. As close as Katie was with her family, however, there was no meet-the-parent situation, no, hey mom, can my boyfriend come to dinner, instance. Quite the contrary, although Katie told a friend she was falling in love, she was very tight-lipped regarding Tony when she got around mom and sis. And as big sisters and moms tend to do, they asked Katie about the mystery man she was spending time with. Katie would shrug it off, give vague responses, which mom and sis thought was out of character. It wasn't like the kind, happy Katie to keep secrets from them, but they assumed maybe it was just a teenager being a teenager, not feeling like talking about her new beau. While Katie's family was being left in the dark, Katie was getting closer to Tony and began receiving friend requests from his inner circle on Facebook. Four different friends of his, Dan, Cynthia, Shane, and Crystal, had reached out to her, and Katie was feeling pretty good about becoming part of a new group. And they had the nicest things to say about the new man in her life. Katie was feeling pretty lucky. It was now a few months into the new romance, and Katie was still keeping quiet about Tony. He hadn't met any of her friends, and her sister Sabrina tried to get through to her, tried to ask questions, find out more about him. Katie still refused to open up, and Sabrina was beginning to wonder why. That summer, Sabrina came home for work early and, by chance, ended up meeting Tony Bushby. It was unexpected. Katie and Tony just happened to be there standing outside on the stoop. Sabrina asked her sister's friend to come inside and have a seat. Tony and Katie came in, sat on the couch, and Sabrina excused herself for a moment. And when she came back, Tony had already left. She found it weird, rude, and thought he was generally off-putting. That was the only time Sabrina would see Katie and Tony together. Katie's mom, Joy, would see her daughter and Tony together once as well. Walking down a street one afternoon, she just happened to bump into them. It took all three of them by surprise, and Joy was quite taken aback when she stopped to chat and Tony just kept walking. This wasn't a friendly, polite young man that Katie's mother was hoping would capture her daughter's heart. Something was off. Meanwhile, Katie was opening up on Facebook to Tony's four friends, particularly Dan and Cynthia. Cynthia was reaching out to Katie, striking up quite a friendship, and it appeared was more of an ex of Tony's, interested in getting to know the new woman in Tony's life. She seemed eager to meet Katie, and Tony made it sound like Cynthia was possibly trying to get back together with him. By December, Katie agreed to meet Cynthia. The three of them, Katie, Cynthia, and Tony, would get together one night and just hang out and get to know each other. 
Cynthia, as well as Tony's other friends, was very much into the partying life, drinking, etc. So Cynthia suggested a wooded area that she knew of, a place that was far off the beaten path where they could meet up, enjoy each other's company without worrying about making too much noise or disrupting anyone else. And then on December 23rd, Katie told her sister Sabrina that she was going out with Tony and her new friend Cynthia. She first met up with Tony and they headed off to that remote wooded area. Standing there in the quiet night, Katie and Tony waited. Cynthia texted Katie that she was running late but never showed. They called it a night and when Katie got back home, she had received some Facebook messages from Cynthia who apologized for the no-show. They made a plan to meet up again soon after the holidays. Soon it was Christmas Day, and Katie spent it with her mom, her sister, and her niece and nephew. They exchanged gifts and enjoyed some good food. Sabrina mentioned that she had plans the next day in London, December 26th, and needed a babysitter for her two young children, just three and four at the time. It would be an overnight gig, and Katie, the doting aunt, was happy to take the job. So the next day, Boxing Day. Sabrina left her home and her children in the care of Aunt Katie. At about 7 p.m. that evening, Sabrina called Katie to see how things were, what the kids were up to, and was pleasantly surprised to learn that they were already in bed and hadn't been a problem for their aunt. Sabrina called again later, checking in, but this time, Katie didn't pick up. A few more calls and still no answer. Sabrina knew her sister, though, and didn't get too worried. Katie was probably drawing, had her headphones in, and hadn't heard the phone. By the next morning, Sabrina still hadn't heard from Katie, and there was still no answer at home. So she called her mother, Joy, and asked her to stop by the house in Borehamwood and check on things while Sabrina made her way back from London. Joy had just gotten off work and made her way over to Sabrina's house, a short distance from where she and Katie lived, and arrived at the neat brick home on that cloudy Tuesday around breakfast time. As she approached the house, she heard the cries of her two young grandchildren coming from inside. Grandma, Katie's dead. Three dreaded words. Joy tried to remain calm for the sake of the two kids and asked them to let her in. When she got inside, she found Katie lying in the kitchen against the fridge, her body covered in blood. She tried to lift her daughter, but she was cold and stiff. She immediately called 999, frantic to have her daughter's life saved. Police arrived shortly after, but it was too late. Katie was pronounced dead at the scene. Katie Winter had 23 stab wounds to her neck, body, and hands, and had put up a fight. Thirteen of those wounds were fatal, and her jugular veins and vital organs had been penetrated. She had lie there in the kitchen, dead all night with her niece and nephew in the house. They were both unharmed. Evidence at the scene indicated that Katie's murderer was somebody she knew. There was no sign of a break-in or forced entry, nothing missing that would lead to the conclusion that this was a robbery gone wrong. And the severity of the fatal injuries surely suggested that this was personal. Police theorized that Katie had led her attacker into the house, walked down a corridor and into the kitchen, where the attack then took place. 
They tried to piece together what could have happened the night before and asked Joy and Sabrina if they had any idea who could have murdered their Katie. Joy and Sabrina were, of course, shocked and overcome with grief. Katie really was one of the kindest people they knew, always happy. It was unbelievable that this could happen to her. And although they didn't have many details regarding Katie's boyfriend, they did mention that Katie had been dating a boy named Tony that they didn't know very well at all. So police looked into Tony Bushby. The 18-year-old had no criminal record, nothing that immediately stood out as being off. They went to his home in Borumwood to speak to him and were met at the front door by his mother, who said her son wasn't at home. When questioned about Tony's whereabouts the night before, she told police that Tony had been out in the evening and had come home around 8.30 to grab his ID before going out to the pub. He returned back home around 10 p.m. and was in a noticeably bad mood. Police returned to Tony's home a bit later so they could speak to him. Tony insisted that he and Katie were not involved and not dating, and he seemed defiant. Police wanted to have the opportunity to speak with him more freely, away from his mother, so they brought him down to their headquarters. While in the car, Tony did begin to speak more openly. He told police that he knew Katie and that he was aware she had been babysitting last night. Police were immediately a bit suspicious regarding Tony's recalling of his own whereabouts the night before. They didn't match up with what his mother had just told them a few hours earlier. They now considered Tony a suspect and arrested him. His home was then turned into a crime scene and searched for evidence, and blood was found on Tony's door and collected for analysis. Meanwhile, Katie's phone and computer were seized and were being analyzed to gather information that may lead investigators to an answer as to what she was doing before she was murdered and who was in her life in the weeks leading up to the murder. The next morning, while in custody, Tony asked to speak to police, and it was then that he admitted he had lied to them. He knew more than he let on and was ready to talk. While he still claimed he had no participation in Katie's murder, he did say that he had spent that Boxing Day night engaging in illegal activity. That was all he was willing to say until later that evening when he asked to speak to police again. Now he elaborated on that illegal activity. He told police that his friend Dan Tress had messaged him on Facebook asking for a favor. Tony hadn't mentioned this part to his mom because she didn't approve of Dan. What happened was, Dan came by and picked Tony up on the night of the 26th, and they went on a drug run. Dan needed Tony to be a lookout of sorts. While in the car, Dan had asked about Katie. He was one of those four friends of Tony's that had formed a friendship with her on Facebook, and he wondered what she was up to that night. Apparently, Dan was very interested in the fact that Katie was alone that night and babysitting. Hmm. Once at their destination, a park, Dan disappeared for a while to do his drug pickup, leaving Tony by himself sitting on a park bench. When Dan returned an hour later, the pair got back into the car, and Dan noticed his friend shivering, so he offered him up his gloves. According to Tony, he put on Dan's gloves and felt something funny. The gloves were soaked in blood. Dan wouldn't say why, 
what had just happened in that hour and what was he doing during that drug pickup? Dan drove Tony home and freaked out. He went right inside and washed up, getting the blood off of him. It was once Tony was arrested and at the police station that he realized Dan must have killed Katie. Police got as much information from Tony as they could regarding Dan Tress. Tony was pretty sure he lived in central London, but had never been to his home. While attempting to hunt Dan down and by analyzing the data on both Tony's and Katie's computers, police realized he was nothing but a figment of Tony's imagination. There was nobody named Dan Tress in the United Kingdom. Now a case was starting to come together to bring Katie Winter's killer to justice. Tony Bushby was lying to police. There was no friend, Dan Tress. No late-night treks to a park for a drug errand on the night of Katie's murder. Blood on the Bushby home door that turned out to be Katie's. Police reviewed security cameras in the neighborhood of the Bushby home, and on the morning after Katie's murder... They saw footage of Tony walking down the street carrying a black garbage bag. What was in the bag? Detective Inspector Carl Foster and his team tried to find it and were confident it probably contained Tony's bloody clothes and the murder weapon. But the bag was never found. There certainly seemed to be enough evidence here to charge Tony Bushby with the murder of Katie, but this was only the tip of the iceberg. There was a lot more to uncover. And Tony was still insisting that the killer was Dan Tress. While doing that analysis on Katie's phone and computer, and by taking Tony's phone and computer after his arrest, police were starting to find a motive and a planned, premeditated murder that was darker than anyone could have imagined. Those four friends of Tony's that had befriended Katie on Facebook had sent her messages, let her into their lives, cheered on her new romance. All four of them had pictures, bios, and profiles created from the same ISP address, all from Tony's computer. The four friends didn't exist except in Tony's mind. He had taken photos of complete strangers and created these four fictional characters. Investigators seemed to think he had used these four friends to manipulate Katie into thinking he was a regular guy, a guy with friends that liked to party and do things that 18- and 19-year-olds do. Police believe that on December 23rd, that day when Katie went to that dark wooded area to meet up with Cynthia, that that was the night that Tony was planning on attacking Katie, and he was going to make it look like Cynthia was her killer. Apparently, the plan was to make it look like Cynthia had lured her to the woods in a jealous rage. He even used his sister's cell phone to make it look like the texts from Cynthia to Katie were coming from someone else. But when he found out that Katie's sister, Sabrina, knew that she was with him that night, he had to abandon his plan. His next idea was to place himself with his friend Dan and make it so that there was an hour-long window for Dan to go off and commit this crime. 
He even came up with a poorly crafted story on how Katie's blood would wind up from Dan's gloves to Tony's hands and to Tony's door. But as we all know so very well, everything on the internet is forever, and the four friends Tony had made up was only the beginning. After Katie's murder, her sister Sabrina was trying to make sense of things and went on to Tony's Facebook page to try and gather some insight into who he was as a person. He seemed to have a fascination with serial killers, particularly the fictional serial killer Dexter from the Showtime TV series of the same name. While Katie's family were barely coming to terms with the loss of their Katie, the brutal murder by the hands of her so-called boyfriend police were discovering some very disturbing evidence on Tony Bushby's computer. Before Tony and Katie even met, Tony had a fascination with pornography, particularly porn depicting violence, rape porn, and submissive black girl porn. It's important to note that Katie was a black woman and Tony was white. The porn that Tony was obsessed with focused on the torture and rape of black women. His internet history revealed that he had watched a video featuring a black woman performing sex acts while a man held a knife to her throat. Porn that depicted black women in a demeaning way where they were subjected to humiliation. And and police began to suspect that Tony had sought out a relationship with Katie for the precise reason to eventually carry out his fantasies. He had deliberately befriended her, earned her trust, and preyed on her, the whole time knowing exactly what he was going to do with her. There was evidence that on more than one occasion, Tony would be sending messages to Katie on Facebook while at the same time viewing pornography about torturing submissive Black women. He had also entered certain phrases into his search engine, like how to get away with murder, how to get rid of a dead body, how to burn a body, and how to dig a grave. Constructing a timeline from the physical evidence and the computer forensics, here is the case that was presented against Tony Bushby. On December 26th, Boxing Day, Tony and Katie spoke by phone. He was out somewhere, but went home at 8.30 p.m., most likely to grab a knife. After 9 p.m., he called Katie again, probably to double-check that she was still the only adult in her sister's home. They must have made plans for him to stop by for a visit, and when he did stop by Sabrina's house, Katie let him in, and they walked toward the kitchen. Tony then attacked Katie with the knife, inflicting those 23 stab wounds, While there was no obvious signs that Katie was sexually assaulted, she did have stab wounds to her upper thighs. Around 10 p.m., Tony arrived at home and, per his mother, was noticeably in a bad mood. Later that night, he searched how to delete a Facebook profile on his computer and archived all of the messages between him and Katie. Within two hours of arriving at home, he watched porn about raping black girls. The next day, he disposed of the physical evidence in an unknown location. On December 30th, Tony was officially charged with Katie's murder. The trial, held at St. Albans Crown Court, began in July 2012 
and he pleaded not guilty. During the trial, the prosecution's case relied on evidence that the murder of Katie Winter was sexually motivated due to the stab wounds on her thighs, along with the internet history of the defendant. The defense only called one witness, Tony Bushby, who testified that it was Dan Tress that had murdered Katie. On July 24, 2012, Tony was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Judge Andrew Bright said that he agreed it was a sexually motivated crime and believed Tony Bushby posed a very serious threat to women. He told the defendant, quote, You derived sexual excitement from the infliction of knife wounds on her. You inflicted stab wounds to the top of each of her thighs. While reading her victim impact statement in court, Katie's mother, Joy, said, quote, Christmas should be a peaceful, happy family time, but for me and my family, its meaning has changed forever, and we will never be able to celebrate it in the same way. She later went on to talk about her first encounter with Tony, that day that she saw him walking with Katie. She said, quote, His eyes were glazed. I had this horrible gut feeling about him. He seemed strange, antisocial. The next year, while in prison, Tony asked to speak to the police. He wanted to make a confession. But when they met with him, they were disappointed. All he told them was that he had blacked out that night, the night of the murder, and that he didn't remember anything. Looking at the evidence and the theories mentioned, I was struck by one particular detail that wasn't spotlighted while doing my research. While Tony Bushby certainly used his fake friends to paint a pretty picture of himself, what was really disturbing to me is how he had created these people to eventually be his scapegoats. Based on the timeline and the evidence, Tony Bushby knew exactly what he was intending to do with Katie the entire time he was courting her. He controlled her by constantly telling her not to mention his name to anyone, and he was setting her up to be killed by one of his quote-unquote friends. He created a motive for Cynthia to kill Katie, the ex-girlfriend, a woman scorned that killed the new woman in her man's life, a woman who lured Katie into a wooded area just to butcher her and then get back together with her ex. When that didn't work out, the motive changed to the drug-addicted bad guy that seemed to have a fascination with Katie. What Tony didn't count on was that the internet never forgets. No matter the number of attempts to erase any trace of evidence or to delete the connection between him and Katie, the proof was all there. And one additional thing that Tony didn't count on, while Katie kept him a secret for the most part, while she remained as tight-lipped as possible, just like he had wanted, her kindness and her connection to others still came through. She still told a friend she was falling for him. She still mentioned his name to her family. He was the first and only real suspect. He acted out his sick, twisted fantasy. He used his victim, treated her like nothing but a pawn in his dark game. But he was never going to get away with it. He was no match for the ink that everything on the internet is written in. He was no match for the closeness between Katie and her family, who were paying attention. Since the murder of Katie, her family has fought to bring awareness to the dangers of social media, as well as worked to ban racist porn in the UK. 
According to Section 63 of the Criminal Justice and Immigration Act 2008, it's a criminal act to possess what is considered extreme pornographic images in the UK. An amendment to the act in 2015 was made to include the criminalization of possession of videos and images which depict rape even when simulated. There are some that argue that these and similar laws only lead to people to seek out the underground for pornography and that that can lead to what can be considered more obscene or even more violent depictions. Tony Bushby will be eligible for parole when he is 43 years old. What Katie Winter's mother misses most about Katie is her smile, bubbly self, and sense of humor. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. To be connected with a trained staff member from a sexual assault service provider, call 800-656-HOPE. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.